Goodday, I'm Patrick Lawler from Investic Wealth and Investment. Joining me today is Neil Ermson, who's a Wealth Manager, also at Investic Wealth and Investment. Welcome, Neil. Our topic today is Behavioural Economics and Finance. It's a branch of economics or finance that draws on the world and theories of behavioural psychology and has been gaining quite a bit of traction lately. In fact, this year's Nobel Laureate for Economics, Richard Harlow, won it for his work in this field. Neil, maybe you can tell us a little bit more about behavioural finance as a, as a tool and how, how you apply it when dealing with investors. Patrick, I think maybe the best way for me to do this is to talk to you a little bit about why it is that sometimes I think it's better for me to manage a client's money than it is for the client to manage their money themselves. So often we get asked this question is, you know, why are you better than I am to manage it? And one of the key things that I think is I'm not as emotional about the client's money as he or she might be. Now we have to be careful here to differentiate between professionalism on the one hand and emotionality on the other hand. But the reality is when I look at your balance sheet or your income state or your financial position, I've got to be as unemotional as possible in the same way that you would hope a surgeon when operating you and you wasn't emotional to the extent that he had just had a fight with his wife or otherwise and wasn't able to distance himself from the emotions associated with that. So when we think about our clients and we meet with them and we build a relationship over time, one of the key things we're trying to work out is are they making any emotional errors? Now, quite often in finance you might look at, it, at a decision, think it's logical, yet in fact you're making it on an emotional basis. So I'll give you an example of one which we, we dealt with. Um, <clears throat> if you think of a client of ours who's got his own business and the client has run the business for 20 years, and at the end of those 20 years he takes a business which started off with one small little machine and eventually landed up with multiple factories, he then sells that business on seven or eight times earnings to a listed company. Makes Out of that he gets a hundred million rand. Now think about the feelings he's experiencing at that point in time. He's joyous, he's happy, uh, he turned a very small investment in a, one machine into a massive investment in a big machine. Uh, he's probably really confident and you know, he's on top of the world essentially. Now very often we meet these clients and the first thing they want to know from us is how should I invest my money? And quite often what I find is there's an element of impatience in it. But the reality with money is sometimes it's the patience that makes you the money, not necessarily the activity. So in this particular case, we asked the individual what he thought might be a good idea, and he said, well, just buy equities. And as you know, equities are priced off a P.E. ratio, and we said to him, well, you know, what do you think the P.E. of the market is today? And he said he didn't know, but he thought equities was a good idea. He had just met this wonderful listed company that was doing so well, and we should buy some of their shares as well. So we pointed out to him that in fact the PE of the market was 20 and that he had just sold his business for 8 and what he was in fact doing was selling a business on 8 times earnings and paying twice as much plus a little bit for the investments he was now asking us to buy. So in my mind that's a clear example of overconfidence and what basically anchoring to a decision you've just, or an experience you've just had and then trying to transpose that into the decision making process with us. Once we were able to actually point out to him that his decision making was flawed and that in fact he should look at it as a separate transaction, go back to the fundamentals of investing, we were able to make a much better decision for him. Another example might be where quite often you find if somebody is just retired, it's very difficult for them if they've been very busy for a long period of time to simply do nothing. So quite often somebody who's been a CEO of a company that's made chemicals is all of a sudden an expert on investments. Not because they're an expert on investments, but merely because the gentleman or the lady in question who had up until then worked 12-hour days is not able to actually sit down 
and just be patient around letting their money do the right thing for them over time. So very often these clients don't actually know they're making these mistakes because what seems to them as a very sensible way of doing things is driven more by their own emotional state and their own personal characteristics than by actual logical sober deductions which we tend to do as professionals where we try and apply logic as opposed to emotional decision-making. Some interesting points you've raised there, Neil. I mean, for instance, going back to Richard Taylor, his book, he talks about the nudge architecture, you know, certain way policies are written, for like a life policy, for instance, or how your mortgage might be set out and how the payments mm. work. But of course, that's, that's a very different sort of kettle of fish from what we're dealing with. We're dealing with a very much personal relationship. Now, you've spoken about the initial stage when you meet the client, but of course, they've got to be managed all the way through because, as you say, often, yes. you know, they'll come to you with an idea and they'll say, or, or there might be a spook in the market about, uh, the markets might be falling at the time and they might say, should I sell everything? I'm really worried about this. And this is where the, the skill of a wealth manager comes in, isn't, doesn't it? Yeah, that's right, Patrick. If you think about uh, one of the famous analogies about being an investment manager, it's like being a pilot. 99% of the time is sheer boredom and 1% is sheer fright. It's in the 1% that we make the difference. Um, during the 1% emotions tend to take over and there's no doubt that when it's your own life that's involved or your own money that's involved, you're going to be more emotional. That's when as professionals we can sit back and say, in the case of a falling market, you know, hopefully we're able to say to the client, stay with your long-term plan, hold the assets you have. We don't think these assets are um, bad assets, we just think that the market is in one of those stages. The, the interesting thing is that clients Clients behave like, sometimes their behaviors are heard and sometimes they just behave illogically. So an example would be, if I said to you that there was a sale on at Fashini and there was a 90% discount, all of you would run to the sale. Yet I tell you there's a sale on in the stock market and it's 50% down and your natural inclination is to sell. So what you essentially are trying to get the client to do is to behave inversely to what the market's doing. That's how you make good decisions over the long term and try and stay away from the herd most of the time but sometimes it's okay to be in the herd. Where we can add value is knowing when the herd is right versus knowing when the herd is wrong and that's normally at extreme points and at extreme points is normally when clients are overly emotional about their financial affairs. And it works the other way around as well when they're getting overconfident about the market at times as well. That's, yes. That's a challenge too isn't it? Um, you know there's, a, there's an overconfidence thing which I often talk to people about. It's about it relates especially to people that have borrowed money. So if you think about borrowing money, the, the, the standard sort of advice in the market is don't borrow money, but actually I, t I take the difference with that. If you think about capitalism over time, if equities can't beat the cost of capital, there should be no reason for capitalism to exist. So in theory, you should actually have some debt on your balance sheet. And the question is, when do I put the debt on my balance sheet, and more specifically, how do I use it? Which brings me to the point I'm going to make is quite often when you find somebody that borrowed a lot of money, specifically property, and maybe other one or two parts of the industry, and they then sold the asset having made an absolute fortune, they then confuse the fact that what made them the money was the price they paid for the asset as opposed to the gearing. They then want to gear up the next investment irrespective of the price they pay, not because it's a good investment, but because they believe that the gearing made them the investment, made them the returns. So that's another area where we try and come in and say, listen, Mr. Client, are you absolutely sure that what made you the money here was your skill and the price you paid for the asset and not, and not the gearing? 
And once we've been through that process, quite often we may look back and say, no, actually this price does not represent an opportunity to gear. And the real point I'm making here is confidence comes from success. And confidence begets or breeds further success. But sometimes you have to look back and ask, was it luck or was it skill? And how did I do that? And you have to actually walk away from things knowing that you're doing it based on confidence, which is misfounded. So Neil, that's some of the application of behavioral finance in a nutshell. Because does that mean we must reject the traditional economic theories? There's a lot of books on behavioral finance now. It's, it's, it's far more accepted as maybe what it was 10 or 15 years ago when someone like Mr. Tyler might have been thrown out of an economics, out of an economics conference, but today that it's well accepted. What I am finding quite interesting is that in today's market there may actually almost be an over-reliance on behavioral finance and not enough emphasis being put on traditional economics and valuation metrics, which I think over time are the foundations of what we use to make good investment decisions. Thanks, Neil, for those very practical applications of behavioral finance into our everyday world. And thank you to our listeners for joining us. This has been a podcast from Investec.